0: Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for being here this morning, glad you're able to make it, and beautiful day outside, and, and uh, so thanks for being in here and uh, worshiping with us together. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, I'm a pastor here at Lower Town, and, and uh, so if you're just checking us out or checking out Christianity, glad you're able to be here uh, with us this morning. Um, I do, do want to just again reiterate what uh, um, the family place and what we're trying to do with them, and I know Emily was talking about a little bit, and just with Ben and Josh, and and uh, just thankful for the ministry that's going on. And, and, and what they do is they, they really offer opportunities for uh, people in the community and neighborhood that are homeless with uh, mainly what our goal and our relationship with them is going to be as far as meal prep. Um, and so um, eating uh, with them, but that would be cooking the food, providing the food, and then eating with them um, and sitting alongside of them uh, and uh, just getting to know them on a, on a, on a weekly basis. We want to try to have two different teams to be able to do that. Um, to be able to provide a meal on a Sunday afternoon. So as soon as we get done with church, we just start making a meal and and, uh, that kind of thing. So again, if you're interested in that, uh, talk with Ben and Josh afterwards um, out in the lobby, or they'll probably be in the fireside room where we normally meet afterwards. So. Um, we are in week two of uh, Nehemiah, the Cry, of the Soul of Nehemiah. It's uh, an Old Testament prophet, um, and we just are going to be marching through uh, this book all the way up until Christmas. Um, if you don't know Pastor Cor Shimeleski from downtown Minneapolis, um, his wife is like cuckoo for cocoa puffs about Christmas. Uh, and she, they, he reminded us on Tuesday. So on Tuesday we had a staff meeting, and he reminded us that um, that it is the calendar is up in the Shemleski house, and it is only 99 days until Christmas. Uh, and they will, they 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 have Christmas decorations up in their house until uh, at least until May, and I think they may come down for a few months, and then they, they bring them back out again. That's just how they how they do it. Uh, anyways, week two. I'm going to do a, a quick recap. But but uh, this week, uh, Nehemiah is going to do this really big Jesus juke, if you will. Um, my grandma used to do this to me all the time. My grandma, uh, had a strong faith, and and uh, my grandpa was a father down in a little little town, Georgetown, Illinois, and. <laughs> And she would always, I mean, it didn't matter what the thing was. Uh, I, I have distinct memories of her, um, you know, me, she asked for a pencil, and I hand her a pencil, and immediately she gets, like, weepy-eyed. And she's like, this reminds me of the nails that were driven into Jesus' hands. And I'm like, what just happened? Right? I thought, he just asked for a pencil, right? And she would just... Then it's like, am I not spiritual enough? Because I don't, I don't get like weepy when I think about a, like a pencil. You know, um, we'd be watching a football game. You know, and a flag would go. You know, someone throw a flag. Well, that reminds me of the penalty that I committed again. It's like, Grandma, just calm down. It's just football, right? Um, but Nehemiah is actually going to kind of do one of those uh, today. Not, not quite that egregious um, like that. But, but it's it's really cool uh, what what he does and just um, gives God the glory. So just real, real briefly here. I have a quick recap in my notes. And quick is underlined. So uh, Nehemiah, this was just last week, the first chapter, and looking at the historical context around what's going on. And so Nehemiah, if you're familiar with the Bible or not familiar with it, that's okay. But there's another Old Testament prophet named Ezra. They are contemporaries. They're going to be uh, writing their books uh, at the exact same time. And then there's going to be uh, King or Queen Esther, who most likely was married to Xerxes the first. Um, And you'll notice that the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and then all these other Persian kings after they take over the Babylonian empire, they're all nicknamed the Great. Cyrus the Great, Darius the Great, Xerxes the Great, Artaxerxes the Great, and that's going to go on uh, in their heritage. And so just looking at who Nehemiah was, he says, I was a cupbearer to the king. And that may seem like just a lowly job but it wasn't it was actually a very very high position job Uh, there are other things with written in other uh, languages um, and from the region of the area around there at this time where the cupbearer was actually number two he was was second in command under the king you wouldn't say it's a cupbearer it kind of sounds like a weird title for someone to be in power but he's always in the presence of the king he's eating the same food as the king he's in the same vicinity always as the king and so that's nehemiah's position as he is in the presence of artaxerxes the great but then what he says last week which i love is that as he's praying and we're going to look at all these prayers of nehemiah throughout this uh, book that he prays and he says lord or, or yahweh the god of heaven then he says the great and awesome god yahweh the great and then he ends his prayer by saying give me strength as i talk with this man that he's just a man. He, doesn't, he is not God, and he is not God the great. He is simply a man. And so this week, we're going to jump right into chapter 2, and we're going to go through the whole thing. I'm really going to give commentary in the first half, and then just briefly just read the second half. Um, honestly, because when I was doing my prep, I thought it was only 1 through 10, and then I was like, oh, I'm supposed to preach this whole chapter, so I'm just going to read the rest of it, and then that'll be that. Um, but it's it's really just narrative, so it's, we're not going to miss anything here. But I want to point a couple things out. Um, I want to start off with this by saying, uh, alone in the crowd, this last uh, la- last night, um, I was able to do a wedding uh, for uh, Matthew Drees and Lauren Hayden. They normally sit right right back there, right in front of uh, where, where Will's at and Nelson there, and uh, and so I was able to do their wedding. So if you see them, I told them they needed to be here today. I don't know why they're not here. It's kind of silly, um, but whatever. Um, I'll judge them later. Just kidding. That's not true. Um, but so I was able to do their wedding, and, and it's interesting, right, because there's not a lot of uh, people as far as the, at that wedding that I that I knew, but I knew a few people, and so I'm able to mix and mingle, and, and I'm able to have a good time, that kind of thing. But there are times where, where I'll do other weddings, and I don't really know a whole lot of people, and that's okay because I'm an extrovert, and I don't mind meeting people and that kind of thing. Um, so it's not... it's. Uh, this isn't really a phrase that I could ever use about myself. Like, I just feel alone even though I'm in a crowd. But I know that's a, that's a thing a lot of people feel, right? That even though I'm in this huge space, there's a lot of, lot of people here. You might even feel that way about church. Like, man, I, I come here every week. I don't even know if anybody even knows my name, right? And just, I just kind of feel alone. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is going to be feeling. There's going to be this huge party going on, and he's going to be depressed, and just to recap, he's depressed because of the news that he was told last week that Jerusalem is in disarray, that the walls are torn down, his home city, uh, and, the, and the gates are burned with fire. And so this is where we pick up then in this story, Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 10. Um, and then uh, the scripture will be up on the screen. It's in your handouts as well, but I'll, I'll uh, clearly read all these uh, verses as well. So it says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes... When wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before So The king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness, of heart, And so I just want to make a couple comments on this uh, paragraph, just a little bit of context. And so it says that when wine was brought before him, and a lot of other translations and, and what it seems like within the Hebrew, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but other Hebrew scholars have told me, um, that this was that wine was continually being brought before him. All right, There's some huge celebration, some huge party. And so, Nisan, so uh, Nehemiah's job, his, his job is to constantly bring uh, this wine in front of the king and the food in front of the king. And so he's going in and out of the presence, but he, the king notices something about him, which obviously shows how close they are. That just by his countenance, something's, something's wrong. And so I just want to read from one commentary. He says this The king had noticed that Nehemiah's change of appearance and asked Nehemiah a few questions about it. It was important to him that his cupbearer should not move around the festival with a gloomy face, right? He's, he's a party pooper, right? Uh, right here at this part. And, and in Artaxerxes he's saying, that's not okay, right? This is, We're supposed to be celebrating. I don't, I don't know what the, the context, I don't know what they're celebrating, but they're having some kind of party. And he said, you shouldn't be gloomy here. And all the people were enjoying the party. Why should his cupbearer spoil the party? Why are you so depressed, he asked, or literally why is your face so bad? Right? I love that. So next time someone looks sad, looks a little depressed, a little lonely, just go up to them. They'll get it. They'll understand. Why is your face so bad? Um, <laughs> don't do that. They, they might take that the wrong way. I might start using that on some of you because you'll get it, but <laughs> all right. So then he, just in this context, again, he's, he's going to be afraid, right? And be, be very afraid. I was having like some Scooby-Doo flashbacks when I was writing this apparently, but but he's supposed to be afraid, or why is he afraid, right? And Because he, and he, he, he explicitly says this in his narrative as he's writing down, I was very much afraid. And quite honestly, he had good reason to be afraid of this king. I was doing a little bit more digging and research on Artaxerxes I, um, and so here's just a drawing of him. And this is not Nehemiah, the one in the red they're bowing down with some other general and some, some popular story that happened within uh, Artaxerxes' reign, but what's fascinating to me was how Artaxerxes got his crown. He was the son of Xerxes, which would normally you'd think, yep, okay, heritage. Uh, he's the son, he becomes king. That's not what happens with him. Um, there was a, uh, a certain uh, captain of the guard or, or someone that was in charge of the army who actually murdered Xerxes I, his dad. And so Artaxerxes challenges him to, to one-on-one, hand-to-hand combat for the throne. And when I say hand to hand combat, I don't mean like sword and shield, I mean hand to hand. And he ends up killing this man with his bare hands to become king, okay? So, so when, when Nehemiah is saying, I'm about to make some huge request, I'm, I'm very much afraid, all right? And again, this huge request is coming off of the heels four years prior where they started to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem, and Artaxerxes says, stop it. All right, so again, going back to Ezra, one of his, his contemporaries writing this book at the same time, this is four years prior to this moment in Nehemiah's life. He says, then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Reum and sure the scribe and their associates, they went with haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. So they started to rebuild their walls. The neighbors in the surrounding area said, hey, Artaxerxes, I don't think you realize what this city does when they have their walls. They're going to cause insurrection and and rebellion, and they're not going to pay their taxes. And so that word gets to Artaxerxes, and he says, stop it. But he doesn't just say stop it. He does it by force and power makes them cease. And now here Nehemiah, knowing this man is is a brutal man, And he just stopped our people from rebuilding their walls just four years ago that he is afraid. And so you can wonder and imagine why the king would say, why is your face so bad? Yeah, kind of makes sense. Here's why. And here we have his response. He says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, right, just listen to the diplomacy that he's about to employ here. May the king live forever. That's a good thing to say to a a brutal king. May you you live forever, if you want to live, at least. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Notice what he doesn't say here. He actually doesn't say Jerusalem. (laughs) Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem, Artaxerxes would have been like, oh, I know that place. No, 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 no. I mean, the answer is no. He doesn't. He, He just says, may the king live forever. My ancestors are buried in this place. It lies in ruins. The gates have been destroyed with fire. So he doesn't even bring up Jerusalem. Then he goes on, and then it says this, that the king said to me, what is it you want? So here he is. He's afraid for his life, for his people, for Jerusalem, whatever it may be in that context. He's afraid, and he says, the king then says back to his probably friend, what is it that you want? And here's where we get to Nehemiah's second prayer. And this is my kind of prayer, because he literally says, then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Right? Th- think about how quickly this response would be, that he says, what is it that you want? And then he says, if it pleases the king. Right, that, that, that's the time. He wasn't like, hey, give me 20 minutes. I need to go to the chapel. I need to go pray for a little bit. I need to get on my knees. And there's something that happens right here in a moment, in an instant, where it says that I prayed to the God of heaven. That simply in this quick interaction, my soul, my heart just says, God, help me. And then I answered the king. And I, and I love this. We see this actually from the apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Um, you're going to memorize two verses, maybe three if you're good. Verse 16 says rejoice always. Verse 17 says pray continually, or uh, older translations will say pray without ceasing. How in the world can you read verse 17, pray continually or pray without ceasing, and not feel like, yeah, I don't do that? Because I think the, what, what the apostle Paul has in here is not I need to be in some room or some closet on my knees praying consistently and continually and without ceasing all the time, I think it means having a heart and a mind of prayer, that when I'm interacting with someone, my heart and my mind immediately says, God, just give me the words to say here. I don't know how how to answer these questions. just happened on Monday. I was at a funeral for a family member of mine out in Minnetonka, and and there are hard questions that my family members are going to be, that that were asking me as a pastor, as their cousin, as their nephew, to be able to say, God, help me. I, I, I don't, I don't, know how to word these things. That's what praying continually is. And Jesus does this over and over in the gospel accounts. Before he performs a miracle, it'll just say, and Jesus prayed to his father, and then boom, he performs his miracle. And again, I don't think this is something that he, he just said, hey, I'm going to withdraw, I'm going to go. He does that. There are definitely times and seasons for that. But what we see is this constant, always on my mind, that I'm going to address the Father, that I'm going to pray to God. This could be at a moment where a boss comes to talk to you, right, and you don't know what that's going to be. This happens to me, and I've talked, so I've got two, two bosses, if you will. I don't know, I probably have more than that, but um, not like the boss, I mean like downtown at Hope Community Church, um, where, where I might get an email from them uh, that will say, hey, could you come to my office? And, and I don't. It may, this might just be the way I was raised, but I'm always like, oh, no, right? Like, what I do, what I do wrong, what happened. And then I get up there, and they're just like, hey, man, I got this present for you. Or, like, it's, all, it's never been bad. And yet I always feel that way. And so there are those moments where I'll get an email, and I'm like, God, help me, please. Right? And then it's always something positive. But, but maybe that's not always the case. It could be a confrontation with a coworker. Maybe a conversation needs to be had with a spouse or a question asked by a child. My kid's only two and a half, and I'm already like, Jesus, help me with this. It could be a conversation with a parent or a family, family member, whatever that may be, to always be in mind and be in prayer. This morning, uh, there's a few of us that gather in the library at 8.15. I know it's early. No, not everyone's a, an early bird, but we are going to be starting to do this. Just to join us for prayer at 8.15 in the library, It's just straight down this hallway right here, there's a little red sign that says library. And just go in there and join us for prayer. You don't need to be, man, I don't, I'm not comfortable praying out loud. It's okay. Uh, just pray to yourself as, as some of us others pray, and, and with just 15 minutes from 8.15 to 8.30, we would, we would love to have you join us in that. And, and this isn't just because, because Jesus has been like, you need, you need to pray early for 15 minutes before church or he won't bless you. That's not the case. But historically, when you look at any great movement that God and his spirit has moved in our country or in the world, Over the last 2,000 years, it is always bathed in prayer. It's always bathed in prayer. There's never been a time in history where some huge uh, movement has started within a a revival and people coming to to Jesus and cities are changed. And it was like, yeah, the strategy. The strategy changed this city. It's never been that. It's always been prayer and God using us in spite of us, in spite of our strategies, in spite of what we think is a good idea. He just blesses it. That's not to say that if we pray, God will start some movement. But it seems, and history seems to teach that God won't start a movement without prayer. And so I'm not trying to say you need to do this. But if you'd be willing, man, I know it's encouraging to me um, personally and so um, we'd love to, love to have you join us. Now, it doesn't need to be every week. You're not committing to something uh, every single week, um, but just from 8.15 to 8.30. And then you're here present uh, in the morning to meet some people when they come in and that kind of thing. So anyways, that'll, that'll be on there. It's on that back your handout uh, sheet just to be able to join us for that if that's a, that's a thing. Then we're going to see here that Nehemiah asks for a cookie. There's a little booklet, booklet, a little children's book that, that I read to Henry every once in a while called, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, He's Going to Want a Glass of Milk. And, and so here we're going to see this first front ask from Nehemiah to, to the king. So he says this, Then I, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in judah where my ancestors are buried so that i can rebuild it again he doesn't mention jerusalem all right so he's being a little strategic here all right he says let me let me let me go to this let me go to this city then the king with the queen sitting behind him and that, and that simply could just be that there was a uh, Uh, an eyewitness, or there was another uh, testimonial, someone that could say, yep, nope, the king said that this could happen, Um, or simply that within their culture, um, the uh, um, Persian culture, the queen was actually a really big deal. Um, She had a lot of uh, power and authority, so I don't know, either way, we don't know why, but Nehemiah mentions that. So then the king, uh, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back okay so he it seems like it's kind of written between the lines here between maybe some two two friends of just saying okay all right but how long is it going to take you right when are are you going to get back i don't want you to just leave forever and so nehemiah it says it pleased the king to send me right so there's something within his voice or how he worded that that nehemiah says i'm good that he's going to let me do this thing so it says i set a time we don't know exactly how long the time was but you can imagine the his countenance, the fact that he was so depressed about the city being in ruins that, that it probably wasn't a long time before he set out to go do this thing. And then when he said he would hopefully come back. But then we're going to get this big ask. Right? We're going to get this follow-up ask for a glass of milk, right? So there was the, there was the cookie. Can I go? Now he's going to ask for a glass of milk. And so he asked for this glass of milk by saying saying this, I also said to him, right, just king didn't say, like, is there anything else I can do for you? At least it's not in the text. He says, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide for me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And before you answer that question, uh, may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates Of the citadel, by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence, I will occupy. All right. So he's saying, I I want like. So just in the context here, these are um, uh, the uh, uh, trees of Lebanon, the cedar from Lebanon. These beautiful, huge trees that were used all over that region during that time. And so he's saying, I I need, I need the best. Possible wood that you have to offer, and I'm gonna I'm gonna rebuild this this uh, uh, fort by the temple, and I'm gonna help it rebuild the wall. And, and hey, while we're at it, my house too, right? Can I make that out of out of this Lebanese wood? It's a big ask, right? This is his this is his cookie <laughs> that he's asking for. And I just yesterday in the wedding, I was preaching through Ephesians chapter three. Not preaching, I was teaching in a wedding. It was whatever you want to call it. In Ephesians three chapter twenty, though, it says. Um, that I, that I now pray to, to, to him who is able to give me above all I can ask or think, exceedingly above all I can ask or even think. Because here, I think, I think he, Nehemiah, definitely teaches us that. Because I, I honestly don't do this a whole lot. I'm real quick to go to, to God and, and ask for, I think, maybe the obvious thing, maybe the cookie Man, it. I, I need this thing. I'm really struggling with this thing, and, and I'm going to stop there. But then he goes on, and he, we're taught to pray in a way, just to pray. And, and he will probably heap blessing on us when our heart is in the right place, that he will provide in ways above we can ask or that we can even begin to think. And so here comes the Jesus juke from Nehemiah. Because we can go back and we can look at the strategy that he employs, we can look at the at the diplomacy that he, enjo- that he employs. But he says this, and because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. That, that's where the glory goes to. The glory doesn't go to, man, I did this thing. Right? Ezra, man, he he failed four years ago. Look at me, man, I did it. No, he, he clearly says. And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. There's no diplomacy, there's no strategy, there's no wit, there's no charm or charisma or good looks that he wins the king. He simply says, because of the gracious hand of God. And then God, in a way, does something beyond whatever he could ask or think. Because Nehemiah doesn't even ask for this. And the king granted my request, so, verse 9, I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And then right here, and the king also sent army officers and a cavalry with me. Right, he gives them an army to follow him to protect them. He didn't even ask for that. Maybe he didn't even think about that. I think we need to pray like that. And then we're going to be introduced to some really bad neighbors, some bad neighbors of Nehemiah, in this context, I love my neighbors. I really do. I've got some awesome, awesome neighbors. I've got Tom to my right, and and his son um, uh, Chris actually comes over probably three, four uh, nights out of the week, and they just hang out. Uh, he uh, Tom Tom is a little bit of what me might call hoarder, uh, and so when he opens his garage, it's just a lot of stuff, and the very last thing is a refrigerator, and it's full of natty ice, right? Just full of the cheapest nastiest beer, but his son comes over all the time, and he hangs out with them. and I don't know how many times I've gone over there and just been like, Tom, like, what, it, how, what did you do right with your boy to make him want to come and hang out with you as much? So I, so I hang out with him as much as I can. I, I don't normally bring Natty Ice. I'll usually bring my own that's at least has some flavor, that kind of thing, um, and, and I'm able to hang out with them. And, and we have a really good time. And, and, I, and I love my neighbors across the street. There's Mike and Nancy, and they just adopted a little girl, uh, Savannah. Um, and she's the exact same age as my son, Henry. And, and it's just it's a lot of fun. So, so don't read between the lines here. I love, love my neighbors. But Nehemiah has some issues. He goes on and he says this. When Sanballat, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So these are people that would have lived and ruled in in a region right around Jerusalem. And so again, just historically speaking here, Egypt is in revolt. That's one thing that Artaxerxes is very well known for, that he kind of squelches that Egyptian revolt. But a big part is his diplomacy within Israel here, that he wants to make sure Israel is on the side of Persia, and all the other neighboring reasons, it was kind of this buffer state, if you will, between where the Persian capital was and then where Egypt was. And so there could be a little bit of diplomacy that he wants to make sure that Israel is taken care of, but by doing making sure that Israel is taken care of, he's upsetting all the other neighboring places. So it says that these, these neighbors, when they heard about this, that 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 the king, someone is coming to promote the welfare of the Israelites, they get upset. So he says, I went to Jerusalem. And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there were no mounts uh, with me except the one that I was riding, no no horses. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Okay, so he's just doing a little recon here. he's saying, what was told to me when I was back in uh, in the king's presence was, is that true? Is it really that bad? And clearly he notices that it is. Verse 14, that I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. All right, so clearly the gates were so in such disarray that his horse wouldn't fit through the hole in the wall to be able to get through. So verse 15, so I went up. Uh, the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and reentered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work, okay? And there's not really any reason why he's trying to be secret. I think he's just not trying to make a big scene of it, of him, him showing up. Verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. So this is going to be the, the Israelite, the Jewish officials that he's talking to. I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Remember last week we talked about how they were in exile, right? They, they had been dispersed all over the known world. And then Cyrus, under his leadership, under, under the Cyrus the Great, the first king of Persia, he allows the Jews to go back to um, Ju- uh, Jerusalem And and that's where they're supposed to be. That's that's their promised land. That's where they're supposed to be happy and enjoy the covenant of God on their people forever. And yet, they're still being oppressed. They're still under the rule of a foreign government. They're saying, I know we're here. We're where God said we should be, but something's still not right. It still feels like we're in exile. And so that's why he says, we will no longer be in disgrace. So Nehemiah is saying, there's gotta be something. It can't just be inhabiting the land, There's gotta be something about this external force that's occupying our space that we need to be delivered from them and then maybe we'll be free from exile. But as we looked last week, that's still not gonna be true. It's not gonna be true of total freedom from exile until Jesus sets Israel free and sets us free along with them. So then they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Right? Again, because they're, rem- they're remembering the letter that king had sent four years prior. And I answered them by saying, and again, right? He could, he could use a lot of strategies here. Oh, see this letter? The king told me all these different things. He said, no, 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 the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you will have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. He's saying this is going to happen. It's not because of our good work ethic. It's not because of our strategy. It's not because we've got people who are really good master builders, and we're going to get this thing up before we even know what's going on. He just says the God of heaven will grant us success. So... When we think about prayer, just in conclusion here, when we think about prayer, what I remember and what I'm reminded by, especially in this story, is I was really prepping this sermon. There was kind of one way I was going, and then I just got so convicted by some of the things that Nehemiah does here, that when we think about our prayers, it's not it doesn't seem like God puts a lot of stock in exactly what we pray, but he sure puts a lot of stock in who we're praying to. Who are we praying to in our times of need, in our times of when we feel like our walls, metaphorically, are broken down, when we feel like there's just no, no help here, can we shout out and say, God, help me? Nehemiah is a historical person. He's a person that we read about, that we can read about, yeah, even with, outside of, of the Bible and extra-biblical sources. But he's so much more than just a prophet. He's so much more than some cupbearer that was in authority, that was before the king, that we just read this story about his prayers. Yet yeah, we can learn about prayer, but there's this really cool thing that I've learned over the years called prophetic performance art. That there's some things that prophets will do in the Old Testament that just seem very mundane. But then as we look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ and we look back at the things these prophets were doing, we go, whoa, they did that thing because that's what Jesus was going to do. So in Moses, and for example, we just went through Exodus for a long time last year, and as we go through Exodus, we see all the different things that Moses, he's interceding for his people between God the Father and the Israelites, that he is, he's uh, going into the Holy of Holies, that he's in the presence of God, all these different things that he's doing. And he makes this serpent that's going to be held up on a staff, this bronze serpent. People, all they have to do is look at it and be healed. And Jesus then is later on going to say, the same way that serpent is raised in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be raised. But there's all these prophetic things, and just by them doing them, point and scream to Jesus. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does here. I don't think it's any mistake or oversight that we should give to this to look at someone, a a prophet, this prophet Nehemiah was someone who was seated at the right hand of the king, living in a palace, that he had everything at his disposal, and from that vantage point, he hears or he sees his people suffering, he sees that they are in need, and he leaves everything behind to travel through a wilderness to be rejected even by his closest neighbors. And he's going to be, right, spoiler alert here, he's going to be victorious. He's going to rebuild this wall, but it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be without sacrifice. And as we look at Nehemiah and we can look at this idea of this prophetic performance art and say, that's Jesus, That Jesus was seated at the right hand of God in his palace, in glory, in heaven, with everything at his disposal, and yet he sees his image bearers suffering. He sees us, his people, living in sin and darkness, and he has compassion on us, and so he comes to us. He takes on flesh, born of a virgin in a manger over 2,000 years ago, so that he can be with us. And he lives a perfect life, and he dies. He is betrayed by his closest friends, his closest allies. He's murdered at the hands of his image bearers. His creation kills him, kills the creator. And he will be victorious. He was victorious, but he will return, and he will be victorious. And that was not without great sacrifice. So in closing, our gospel application... Just simply, are we known as a house of prayer? And again, I'm not trying to say you need to do this. If I don't see you, I'm taking names and taking tabs. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I might not be able to make it every week. All I'm trying to say is, are we known as a house of prayer? Can we pray? And if you can't make it at 8.15, maybe you're driving in the car, just pray in your car, right? right? Don't just show up to be seen. I want us to be a house of prayer. And then... Finally, do we recognize the power of prayer? And the power of prayer, again, not because of what we say, but who we say it to. That's where the power comes from. He is the one. He is the Father that we pray to. He is Yahweh the Great. And so we can look at our circumstances around us and we can paraphrase what Nehemiah says, that it is just a man. It is just a thing. It is just a day. It is just a circumstance. But I am praying to God, the awesome and great We're going to enter into a time of communion like we do every week. And and as we look at these elements of the bread that was broken for us and his blood, the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us, that that we no longer have to pay for our sins. That that great and awesome God already paid for that sin. That as he took on flesh and as he goes to Calvary, that we can look at this immense, costly sacrifice that Jesus has for us and say that we should be living that kind of life as well not to earn some brownie points with God or, or maybe like make Jesus love us more, that's already done. He already came, he already died for us. He can't love us anymore. So we take these elements to remember what it is that Christ did for us, to remember his life of someone who was in power and authority, living in a palace with everything at his disposal, and he saw you. He saw you and loved you enough to take on flesh and to die for your sins and for my sins and for all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so as we take these elements, all we'd ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. Um, You might not be part of this church or any church, this might be your first time, but maybe this is the first time you say, man, if that's what Jesus did for me, then yes, I'm in. And today could be your first opportunity to have communion with this church family in this body. There's a a gluten-free option over here on your right if that is a dietary need. Will you close with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Thank you. Great and awesome God. God, I pray that as we, your people, your bride, God, I pray that we wouldn't take your blessings for granted. As we look around in our, in our culture and our society, and, and, and quite honestly, God, when we look at the global situation, as Americans, we're, we're doing quite well. The fact that I can stand up here with a microphone on and say the things that I just said without suffering persecution is nothing short of your grace and your mercy. So God, I pray that we would rejoice in who you are, that it is your doing, it is your spirit that moves. It's not us, it's not our strategies, it's not our our mailers or our Facebook ads or, or anything of that, it's only you that works in our hearts, and our minds, in our souls. Only you can change a human being's heart and soul and mind. And so, God, I pray that that would be our hearts this morning, that we would be convicted, yes, to pray more, that we would be convicted to pray continuously, to pray like Nehemiah, that in those moments, our first thought is, Jesus, I need you right now. So, God, we do need you. We need you now in this moment that as we partake of this body and bread that represents your son and what he did for us, that great costly sacrifice, that we would remember that we have been set free from the bondage of sin and slavery to be free in Christ. So God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his sacrifice. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.